This is Medicaid Leadership Exchange, a podcast where Medicaid directors and other guests get frank about what it's like to steward the nation's largest health insurance program. 80 million or one in four individuals in the U.S. receive health care through Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program. Medicaid agencies administer a complex web of programs. Listen in as we explore some of the challenges leaders in Medicaid navigate and their top priorities to deliver services and build health. Hello and welcome to the Medicaid Leadership Exchange. I'm your host, Karen Siever-Hill. This season is gonna be a series of discussions about some of the highest priorities within state Medicaid. Things like unwinding of a public health emergency, home and community-based services, behavioral health needs of our uh, community, as well as needs of our workforce in a very challenging time. Taken all together, these are all discussions about change and how our leaders are navigating change. I think we can all agree that there is no sector, there is no workforce that is unmoved or untouched by this common experience we've had over the last two years of pandemic. Uh, But we'll find that the impacts to Medicaid, its workforce, and its beneficiaries are unique, and that's what we're going to explore this season in Medicaid Leadership Exchange. So we don't know when we'll get to a post-pandemic phase. Um, That one is hard to nail, but we are learning that our aspiration in Medicaid is not to recover or to revert to where we were before, but rather to see where the new directions and where leadership takes our agency. That's the discussion our listeners can look forward to in this season. So today we'll get started with a real um, elevated and horizon level view of how Medicaid might move out of this public health emergency and into its future. Later on, we're gonna delve more deeply, but for today, I brought together a panel of expert partners who join us in together forming the Public Sector Leadership Consortium. This is a trio of experts in leadership development as well as a trio who are former Medicaid directors. So they come as a double threat. They have expertise on two sides of today's conversation and I'm so glad they took the time to join me. I'm gonna ask each to introduce themselves and a little bit about their background. I will begin with you, Mark Larson. Karen, thank you. So I'm Mark Larson. I'm Senior Vice President at the Center for Healthcare Strategies, and I'm formerly the Medicaid Director from the state of Vermont. Welcome, welcome back. Next, Kate McAvoy, if you could say um, an introduction. Yes, good afternoon, Kate McAvoy. I am a Program Officer focusing on state leadership development and uh, healthy aging at the Millbank Memorial Fund, and I previously served as Medicaid Director in Connecticut. Welcome, we're glad you're here. And lastly, Gretchen Hamer, if you could introduce yourself. Hey everyone, I'm Gretchen Hammer. I'm the founder of the Public Leadership Group and I had the opportunity to serve as the Medicaid Director in the state of Colorado. Clearly we're in good hands. Your expertise, your experience is just what we need for today's conversation. Some of our listeners may need a little bit of level setting. So you're all former state Medicaid directors. Maybe you could help us understand what is so unique about this particular point of time for a Medicaid program? What is that folks should understand about the um, the crossroads where state agencies and their programs find themselves right now? Um, Mark, I might pick on you first and then invite others to comment. 
Karen, thanks. So I think we have a number of different uh, issues, challenges that are converging at the same time. I mean, obviously we have a pandemic, we have a public health emergency, which continues. Uh, and at the same time, we are starting to plan for its, its unwinding, uh, which we recognize represents one of the biggest changes in health coverage that our country has faced since the, the biggest since the uh, Affordable Care Act was implemented. Uh, we've had public reckoning around racial justice and equity. Uh, we have folks who just are, are working in Medicaid and state government who are tired after two plus years of working in new environments um, under really stressful conditions, trying to help people meet their health needs, trying to help health systems continue to function um, and trying to continue to advance longstanding priorities as well. And so I think it's unique in the context of so many uh, significant changes happening at the same time and at such a, a significant pace. I appreciate that. Gretchen, would you add anything to Mark's explanation to eliminate what's so different right now? Yes, I would I would add, and I think Mark touched on it, but the other thing that happened during the pandemic is the communities that were most disrupted by COVID, by the economic recession, by the racial justice movement are often also served by Medicaid. So Medicaid directors were needing to not only respond to the changing public health environment, but also really changing needs. And in particular, families with children with disabilities or older adults who depended on in-person home care, you know, those systems and supports that Medicaid is so well positioned to provide were really not able to be provided in the same way, right? We had to quickly pivot. And, and we probably know that some people didn't get all the supports they needed. Um, some families became very isolated. So I think that there was also this deep, intense pressure to also stay close to the beneficiaries so that we were sure that home health services were being delivered, et cetera. And that just added to the emotional stress that people who were working in the agencies felt as they were navigating their own families through very uncertain times. So I would just add the population of the Medicaid program not only has grown, as Mark said, because of the continuous coverage requirements to be in many states, the largest the program has ever been and nationally, um, but also the needs of that population were perhaps uniquely uh, changed and impacted by the actual experience of the pandemic the recession, and some of our other community disruptions. Thank you for that. If I could jump in and just add one more observation for our listeners. States and the federal government are pretty good at working together when there's a single natural disaster. You know, a hurricane hits Florida or Louisiana, fires out here in the West. There are structures in place, but to have all 56 states and territories, <laughs> all health systems, all nursing facilities at the same time across the country, it was an incredible burden for the federal government to be responsive. And they did a fabulous job in many places, creating templates and sort of regulatory pathways. But I just think we sometimes forget the systems we have in place to be responsive to emergencies are designed to be small, right? A, a small event, um, perhaps a, a public health outbreak or something like that. The scale of this challenge and how it went through different parts of the country at different times, I think also makes this part unique. And, and it's going to 
probably impact how we come out of this uh, pandemic uh, as well in, in all of the states and territories. I really appreciate that you landed us there. The, the scale and, and this strange balance between having a common experience uniquely felt by community, by population, by region, I think particularly shows up in what is, a, as you said, a state-federal partnership like Medicaid. And I think um, folks who are listening probably could get in their mind's eye really quickly what this last experience has been for direct healthcare service providers, but we've just given them a really good insight what that looks like when you are trying to charge ahead with the nation's safety net, which really did its job. It was really tested, a safety net function for more and more Americans to maintain their coverage during this time of high stress and high concern. So I think, I think we did an admirable job uh, setting that up for our folks' understanding. So one thing we're going to hear during this season is um, a fantastic quote that is, don't let a good crisis go to waste. And so I'd like to go around um, the panel here um, to get a better understanding from your point of view, what it looks like to not waste this type of crisis. And we can think about this on at least three levels, but maybe I'll challenge our conversation. What does it look like to not waste the crisis when it comes to our people, our workforce? What does it look like when it, to not waste this crisis when we think about our programming and the services provided for the populations we've chatted about? And then what does it look like to not waste this crisis when we talk about partners? Because Medicaid, as noted, does not work in isolation. So let's start inside and work out. So let's start by talking about the people um, and where the opportunity not to waste crisis is. Mark, maybe you could think about that for us. Yeah, part of what that means for me is we often feel that pressure in Medicaid programs and state government to get through the day and just sort of uh, fight the fires of the day, to whack the moles that come up. And I think not letting a crisis uh, go to waste implies having to know really clearly what your long-term goals are so that you can take advantage of the emerging situations that may be out of your control to try to leverage them for long-term advantage. And so what does that mean in the context of the people who work in Medicaid? You know, one of the nice things about the pandemic was that there was a lot of stuff to do. Uh, it was maybe the downside too, but it meant opening up opportunities for uh, people deeper into the bench to be able to, to make meaningful contribution to the work of helping the safety net work, keeping the wheels in our health system moving. And that sort of understanding of, hey, there's a situation that we might not be able to control, but you know what? We can make an investment in the long-term growth of our staff, uh, develop new leaders, give them new opportunities. Uh, in particular, connect opportunities with diverse leaders of the future is one of the ways in which programs have taken advantage of the turmoil of the last two years to be able to meet a long-term interest as we think about how do you build the workforce of the future? Appreciate that. You've given us some things that maybe we'll follow up with, but to the first point, the next ring out would be, what do you think, Kate, it is like to not waste the crisis when you think about Medicaid programs and services? Well, I think directors across the country have already emblemized um, the area of focus that I'd like to touch on, and that is really digging in and creating meaningful, actionable progress on race equity in the programming that Medicaid does for people served by the program. I want to point to uh, the fact that there is 
a shared sense of urgency around this, and there's been an incredible uptake of, uh, you know, literacy around the why. Um, the how of it, I think, is emerging, um, and really in partnership with the federal government, I think leading edge states have identified every stage on a sort of developmental continuum from first understanding the nature of the challenges of disparities through data. And that's a definite uh, area in need of uh, attention in a lot of places in the country to have greater capacity and to stratify data and to analyze it in ways that uh, make it readily usable. But building from that, you know, relatively uh, elementary uh, standpoint, you know, building in information and strategies from the learning that is derived there to address longstanding differences of access, experience, and outcomes. We know the areas of focus that are uh, rising predominantly to the highest level of need for attention, maternal health outcomes, uh, early childhood experience, but also there are a number of other areas in uh, chronic disease and uh, areas of disability that are perhaps uh, less elevated, but uh, no less in need of attention. I'll just uh, wind up by saying that uh, this is an, an emerging moment in time where there is so much uh, shared vision around this and just point to the um, material that's just been issued by CMS, the infographic that captures the each of the sort of domains of emphasis that they're urging states to take a look at and to act on. Um, we have everything har uh, marshaled and harnessed. Um, now's the time to really make progress on that. I appreciate that. Thank you, Kate. Um, Gretchen, we'll task you with the outer ring of the circle I propose. So what does it look like to not waste the crisis when we think about all the partners that Medicaid interacts with? Yes, well, I think certainly what I've heard from former colleagues at here in Colorado, as well as Medicaid directors across the country is, you know, the, the immediate and urgent need to communicate with providers and families around things like PPE. Remember when we were in the national crisis and we had no PPE? Testing, vaccines for sure. So a real uh, impetus to use that as an opportunity to have immediate work to do together, hopefully have some success at that work, and then build the structures for long-term collaboration. So I think we've really heard new channels of communication were opened with critical partners, but also we perfected technology, which we should have probably done five years before, but beneficiaries can now listen in to hearings or participate in stakeholder meetings without having to arrange for transportation, without having to arrange for childcare. And so really creating a more accessible Medicaid program through the technology we had to build to internally operate, to do all staff meetings and to you know, submit testimony to our legislature or other things, really has benefited stakeholders in that they're now able, and in big states like out here in the West, you know, a six hour drive to get to the Capitol to provide testimony is just no longer necessary. You just don't have to do it anymore. You can participate virtually. So I think we've really seen and heard the structures. Now we're gonna to have to right size that, right? We heard some folks say like, I can't talk to the pediatricians every two weeks, right? Like I'm gonna, we're gonna to have to get back out of the emergency engagement part. But, but we certainly now have, I think, open lines of communications across partnerships that perhaps didn't exist or weren't as 
easily used as they were prior to the pandemic. I really appreciate where you led us, Gretchen, and, and let's dig in a little bit more. Um, maybe Mark and, and Kate can help um, reflect further that we have been in a time where stakeholder engagement has been at a depth and a frequency, as you just said, that was previously unseen. A lot of power to neutralize some um, barriers to access your Medicaid program and a lot of opportunity to increase transparency. So Mark, help us understand, is that fleeting? Does that change the culture and DNA at Medicaid agencies and people, how they behave? Or do we all kind of go back as suggested to level set how, just how much touch and engagement we can manage? So I think that's maybe the big issues for us to, to wait and see on. I think we have to be really careful. That's the force of the status quo, the pre-pandemic status quo. We, we don't want to underestimate it. I think we've had some really big opportunities to force ourselves to change some paradigms around how we engage with members, how we engage with stakeholders. Uh, I think the future questions come down to how well can we sustain those efforts? Um, how well can we make sure that we're targeting them to make sure that we are really providing opportunities for um, some communities who have had the least voice to have real voice in the future? And, and I, I think the other big challenge is how to go from one-off transactional engagement to real meaningful engagement where particularly communities and members have real involvement in the decision-making, both policy and operations of Medicaid programs. How do we go beyond just the, you know, your standard stakeholder meeting, advisory committee meeting, uh, to really provide sustainable opportunities to have voice in decision-making? That's when we, I think we would have real change moving forward. Yeah, and Mark, I'm struck by that. Um, I remember in one of our previous podcasts uh, focused on telehealth and how Medicaid pivoted. You know, I think it was Cindy Bean from West Virginia was like, don't ever tell me we can't move quickly, right? My Medicaid program moved so quickly. We implemented telehealth overnight. I think we're going to have to find the balance because we certainly can't go back to having rulemaking or policymaking take 12 to 18 months, which is what sometimes it took in previous life, in the previous life, right? Um, but we also probably don't want to move at the pace of telehealth regulation change, which was really fast, if indeed we're trying to build an authentic engagement. But I do think we're going to have to, now we know that Medicaid can, can operate at different speeds, right? It can operate at different speeds. Perhaps we believed it was only at one speed, um, at one speed and then slower. But we, don't, we need to know when uh, to deploy moving quickly, moving with urgency, right? The children's behavioral health crisis right now, I would hope we were moving with a little more urgency than perhaps we are, right? Because of all of the other things we have on the plates of the Medicaid program. But so how we identify places where we move quickly and urgently, and then where we use the right structures and supports to make sure the, po the policymaking or program design is informed and engaged and all of those things. And those are not mutually exclusive, but I think that's a real leadership challenge to know when what speed to go at. I don't know, Kate, you were in the seat for part of that. I don't know if you have a point of view on that. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, is a really excellent point about uh, finding a cadence um, around, you know, that cycle. Um, obviously, one end of the continuum was this enormous, you know, rapidity that we had to have in an instant moment. The other end of the spectrum is this 
incredibly static uh, hidebound machinery that um, really reflects, uh, you know, reliance on the Medicaid agency being the central seat of all the expertise, fully developing proposals, and then essentially sending them out for this highly formalized uh, intimidating and inaccessible process that for all the reasons that you have spoken about uh, does not feel receptive or uh, generative for so many folks. So I think there's there's got to be fundamental shift in the thinking around the primacy of the ideas and the expertise, more humility around that, but also uh, development, as Mark was saying, around, you know, continuously generative means of engagement. And I'll just wind up by saying that it's a perennial frustration to me, and I know all of us, uh, when we hear people say, you know, I don't know how to get in touch with Medicaid members. There are many standing grassroots bodies that are at the ready. Um, this is not a failure of uh, availability. It's a failure of an orientation um, that I think is all too often centered on sort of the legal re the legal minimum. Um, and I think it does require uh, a major shift in thought around the why of it. I can tell already with that last round of comments, you guys very quickly put right back on your Medicaid director hats. So I'm going to ask you to keep those Medicaid director hats on. One of the things that um, listeners are going to hear throughout this season is a sense of being able to articulate vision and execute vision and, and, and how uh, huge a priority that is right now as we anticipate Medicaid will start to pivot out of what has been uh, an emergency sometimes driven by reaction, but also explosive innovation um, and investment as we just talked about, even changing the clock, making us move a little faster and more nimbly than we didn't think before. So imagine that um, that you are back in your old chair as a Medicaid director. Um, what type of um, things would you prioritize? Um, what type of things would you want to articulate as your vision moving forward? And warning, then I'm probably going to ask you, what do you think you'd be blind to? Because some of our listeners might want to know, what are we missing? So let's, let's start with a positive. <laughs> what do you think would be your priority if you were sitting in that chair as you emerge? You know, I think we, we've touched on it a little, and certainly Mark's comments touched on it a little, but you have to know who your team is when you're aiming to make to set priority, you have to know your capacities and your team so that you right size the effort to the best of your ability. And so I do think, and I think we hear Medicaid directors really continuing to stay internally focused on, we know we've got high levels of uh, volatility in the global workforce, um, uh, but I think really understanding who who's on their team and, and how are they doing and what's the capacity and then setting those priorities so that it's connected. But very quickly, my second worry would not only be the people that I work within the state agency, but I don't think we yet fully understand the impact of the healthcare workforce that this pandemic is going to have. And if at the end of the day, a Medicaid program is about creating access to services and supports that help people maximize their health, we're going to have to know what does the healthcare system look like, broadly defined, long-term services, supports, and other things. So I think that a Medicaid director has to insert the needs of Medicaid beneficiaries and of the program into probably much larger conversations that are happening in a state about economic development, healthcare re workforce redesign, you know, other parts of state government and local government and private industry 
They're trying to make sure we have a functional healthcare system when we come out of this thing. Those would be the two things I would think of in terms of really having a vision. And then without question, as Kate, I think has so eloquently talked about already, recognizing that Medicaid plays a unique role in supporting people with really complex life circumstances, whether they're experiencing discrimination from the healthcare system or access to resources that, that, that can't quite support their health. So the third sort of in my hierarchy of where I would be worried and focused would be on the continued commitment to advancing equity. I think if we reflect back a decade, two decades ago, and what we thought of as the role of Medicaid, and then we think forward uh, a decade from now in terms of what people expect of their state Medicaid programs, there's just been so much dramatic change, you know, from the pay accurately, pay quickly to, you know, a future that envisions really being an engine of driving population health and being forward thinking and upstream in our efforts to really change the landscape of not just our healthcare system, but really the way that our health and human service systems, at least in the public environment, work. And for me, success in that realm comes back again to Gretchen's point about investing in who are the who are the staff and leaders who are prepared with this, the right skills to be able to be successful in that changing environment, you know, the ability to understand how health systems work, the ability to change data into meaningful information that you can act on, the ability to understand communities at a really personal level, and uh, maybe most importantly, the ability to connect with people to build shared vision and commitment to change over the course of time. I think that we can't focus enough on the envisioning what that workforce is and building it into the future. Because if we don't do that, we just won't be successful at the, at the things people expect of their Medicaid program. Kate, I suspect you endorse both of those visions, but is there something else that you would add on that you would be fired up to try and articulate as your vision if you were back in that chair at this time? Yeah, I mean, I, I basically want to say just a hearty amen to everything that Mark just said. And um, I, I also humbly acknowledge uh, where Gretchen started goes uh, assessing the wherewithal of the present landscape. It feels like a critical first step. Um, but, but I just can't resist touching upon the point Mark made around uh, affirming uh, the intensity of the investment, the personal investment that people have made. And I think just think expansively about that because uh, we don't have the levers of the private sector in state service, um, we admittedly, but there are other aspects, communication, um, you know, hold, holding a collective narrative about the, the why of the endeavor strategically, uh, connecting people in the interrelationship of the strands of work, that can be a value that is en en enormously overlooked. Uh, supporting people with training and development of the type that is being performed by NEMD, CHCS, Millbank. Um, in times of scarcity and travail, you know, we tend to, you know, contract all that type of work. And that's, you know, there's such a paucity of that development work uh, for people in longstanding state service, the, the bedrock folks who are maintaining the civil service system. I just can't 
uh, underscore enough how much that makes people feel as though they're valued and also helps them kind of transcend uh, the lens uh, that they may have operated in, uh, you know, unique to program or whatever they've been involved in specifically. So anyway, ideas around that, I think, you know, NEMD has done an absolutely outstanding job in its leadership agenda around, you know, being generative there, but I think it's really worth it. From a policy standpoint, um, I I'm on fire because I think there are opportunities now, um, you know, around long-term services and supports rebalancing, um, you know, an incredibly rare intersection of exactly what people want with what optimizes the use of state resources. Let's accelerate that right now. Um, there's every reason to do it and a lot of, you know, challenging facets, but again, every reason to do it. I also think, you know, the pandemic in the way that Mark said, illustrated the uh, multiple failure points of, of safety net services uh, to safeguard, effectively safeguard the uh, economic security of low-income folks. And Medicaid is in the best position to be in a leadership uh, role there. I, you know, I've never felt that with more conviction. Braiding in ways that can support food security with waiver aligning with Old Americans Act, coverage of supportive housing services. That was my very last, my penultimate project in Connecticut with an amazing public private team, you know, pairing those services with housing vouchers. These are the opportunities that we can and we must lead through the Medicaid lens because they are not occurring naturally in the environment. And I think we can't afford not to do that, especially with the bubble of resources that are presently available. I'll pick up on that blind spot because Kate, my heart sings when you talk about that. I have seen, however, it really challenging for state Medicaid programs to keep track yes. of all of those bubbles of resources, yes. right? It, you're, you're so, your plate is so full with just getting through the day of managing, um, knowing where all of the American Rescue Plan Act dollars went to yes. your housing departments and other things. So I think a blind spot could be Medicaid, all state agencies, but really without some sort of structured collaboration that is supported by a governor or an outside entity or at some points along the hierarchy of the bureaucracy, I do fear we might miss some opportunities for synergy between Medicaid and public programs just because of the sheer volume of things people are needing to keep track of. I do think that is, is something that would bear fruit over and above the instant exercise of doing this with ARPA um, that, that could be extremely important uh, structurally ongoing. So maybe that's a, an additional reason to suffer through the trouble of it. Gretchen, building on your comment about the blind spots, I don't want to underestimate again the, the draw of this pre-pandemic status quo, particularly where it is driven by certain financial models that we have seen in the pandemic not serve us well, uh, but they have been key to some of the financial stability of a lot of the key players across our health systems, across payers and up and down the, sort of the vertical alignment of our health system. As we sort of breathe, breathe an eventual sigh of relief about not having to live in the ad hoc crisis world, I think if we miss that moment and we and forget how powerful some of that underlying uh, financial system is, I think we could easily revert to some pre-pandemic realities that we would sit here today saying that we don't want to. And, and maybe some of that I would 
particularly highlight around how poorly certain communities and individuals are served by our health system today. And systems are, have been allowed to be able to maintain that for service and experience for the course of far too long. So as we near the close of our discussion together, let's keep in mind, this is a Medicaid leadership exchange. We're really having a leader-led conversation as well as talking about some of the vision and the practicalities, barriers, accelerators to this point in time. If you um, could tell us what you think are the leadership skills that will most come into play during this transitionary time? And if and if our colleagues could sharpen their pencils in that area, you think that they would have even more success. We'll, we'll end on that sense of a gift of focus your skills building here because it will impact um, in the ways that we know you'll be called to lead. So um, Kate, what would what would be your advice to other leaders in Medicaid? I, I say this with, I, I hope, the utmost respect, but the, the place I'd like to start is, um, you know, urging humility on folks around originating solutions. Um, I'd say in particular, uh, BIPOC individuals have clearly illustrated that, uh, as Mark just said, systems have not supported them in myriad specific ways. And we don't know, we especially, we majority culture people, we do not intrinsically know, we are not innately empathic to that type of experience in a way that would inform us sufficiently. So I'd start with that humility around solutions. I also would just like to say, you know, based on my own personal experience, finding some way to get critical distance and to explore the enormity of the emotional impact, especially around grief. Um, this is next to impossible when you are still in the hot house of that set of responsibilities, but whatever means or circle of support could engender that for you as a Medicaid leader, I would just say, please invest in yourself in that way because there are risks of not uh, attending um, to yourself in that respect um, that are extremely significant. And uh, we all care about each of you very much in that respect. Um, just, just have to say that. As I answer this question, I have in mind, obviously, you know, the, the folks who are thought of as Medicaid leaders, the directors, the deputy directors, but I, I really even target my answer to the folks who are deeper in organizations and the gift, although it might often be perceived as a burden also, uh, would be a recognition of the agency that you have as leaders to, to, to make a difference in the world. I think sometimes we, we think of ourselves as cogs in the bureaucracy and we fail to, to think about the, the true influence that we can have over the, the work that is involved in Medicaid and in serving so many, many people across the country. And, you know, with that sense of ability to, to have influence comes the, the skill of being self-aware, the, the skill of being able to engage others effectively, the, the ability to lead teams uh, with with passion and and influence and effectiveness, uh, but I think it all starts with that understanding, which Kate I would want to pair with your sense of humility. The flip side of that is the and the where where you have impact on this world, and how important it is in the work. Yeah, I think it's a purposeful commitment by a leader to operate at multiple altitudes, right? So 
sometimes you have to be down with the staff reading the regulatory structures and figuring out what to do. You have to be at the five foot level in this work. One, so that you stay connected to the experiences of the people you're working with. Two, so you know the right questions to ask. Kate, as you said, when you go out to community and try and understand, you have to know what kinds of things you're solving for. But, but that, so that's critical to be able to operate there, but you have to be able to then rise up a little so you can communicate effectively with stakeholders because they don't operate at the five foot level. And I think Mark, where you were going, which is you have to remind everyone the long journey, where are we headed? What, 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 is, what is out there in the environment that we're managing and navigating uh, long COVID, grief, of people who lost loved ones um, to the COVID pandemic. Like these are all things that are macro influencers on the population and on the work of a Medicaid program that at some point we all look to someone to help us see. And often that's looked uh, to the Medicaid director to at least help describe the landscape and then ask what other people see. So it you can feel like you're getting bumped around when you're operating at multiple altitudes. But if I think you're strategic about it and you know where you're operating, um, it can be a real help in across all this work as I see it in the future. And I think builds on what Kate and Mark said, which is understanding everyone where they have agency, helping describe people where they have agency and also helping to better engage people along the journey. Um, you don't have to know how to get to the destination, but at least someone has to describe the destination and the potential bumps along the way so we can all see them and problem solve together. You all, this has been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you, Kate McAvoy, Mark Larson, Gretchen Hammer. It's it's wonderful to have both a, a detailed understanding and an aspirational look as we go through uh, this significant um, period of change. For those listening, you're gonna hear from Mark and Gretchen throughout the rest of the series. Uh, so we thank them twice uh, today. Um, and you tuned in because you're, you're vested in Medicaid, or you're at least curious. So um, you're just going to want to stay for the rest of our conversations. Um, you're going to be impressed by the vision and the optimism of the leaders that you'll get to know throughout this season, um, especially as you've just heard that these are unprecedented times to be a leader of Medicaid. And um, and it's a great time to listen and learn to, to know where those programs are going and who is gonna bring us to that next destination. So thank you all for listening and for joining the Medicaid Leadership Exchange. This podcast is a collaboration between the Center for Healthcare Strategies and the National Association of Medicaid Directors. Season three is made possible by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation.